you are at Founders FAQ, answers to all the possible questions of a founder. One of the most important things that I think is is also underrated is looking for founder market fit. People talk a lot about product market fit, but it's looking for the match between a particular founder and their strengths and assets with respect to the type of problem they're looking to solve. If you're doing enterprise sales, very different if you're in a traditional industry versus if you're trying to organize a developer community for an open source developer tool. It's just an incredibly different set of skills. So again, I think it's understanding that nexus of both market and founder, trying to dig deep into what are the drivers of a founder, what what incentivizes them, what motivates them? How do they problem solve? How do they think about the problem that they're solving? How thoughtful are they? Welcome to Founders FAQ. Today, my guest is John Maddas. John is an investor at Basis Adventures, an early stage venture capital fund focused on supporting startups using machine learning to address big problems across industries. Prior to Basis Adventures, John was a TechCrunch writer covering machine intelligence startups, machine learning research, and major AI initiatives from Big Tech. His work has also been featured in the Washington Post, NPR, and Education Week. Hey, John. Thanks for coming to Founders FAQ. Yeah, happy to be here. This is a, it's a really fantastic opportunity. Yeah. My question is to you, how do you assess founders in the early stage and what do you look for when you first met founder? Yeah, assessing founders is really hard. I think there's an overused trope in Silicon Valley that um, VCs should really be investing in people at the early stage. And I think that's really important. But what's missed in that is people are actually the hardest to evaluate. They're the highest signal, but they're the hardest to evaluate. And at least at basis set, we try to spend a lot of time thinking both about markets and also about founders, because it's really the interpolation of both that I think leads to successful companies. And so um, when we do diligence, we try to be really thesis driven, really focused on markets, looking for inflection points, while also trying to evaluate founder psychology. And so we as a firm have spent a lot of time collecting data from other funds and founders in the ecosystem to be able to figure out basically these archetypes of what makes a successful founder. And through that lens, we evaluate the companies that we invest in. And that ultimately makes our sourcing more effective and us more effective in supporting founders once we understand them. And evaluating founder, how do you assess the founder core assets, their values and the startup needs? And while if you're saying no, the founder, how do you do that? Because uh, giving the right feedback, uh, especially in the early stage, is pretty important. Yeah. One of the most important things that I think is, is also underrated is looking for founder market fit. People talk a lot about product market fit, but it's looking for the match between a particular founder and their strengths and assets with respect to the type of problem they're looking to solve. If you're doing enterprise sales, very different if you're in a traditional industry versus if you're trying to organize a developer community for an open source developer tool. It's just an incredibly different set of skills. So again, I think it's understanding that nexus of both market and founder, trying to dig deep into what are the drivers of a founder, what, what incentivizes them, what motivates them, how do they problem solve, how do they think about the problem that they're solving, how thoughtful are they, all incredibly important indicators around founder success, grit, etc., and then how that ties into how we work with founders. One, in the event that we do end up investing, I think it's a fantastic blueprint and framework for us to be able to source early hires for the company that match with the personality type of the founder that we've invested in to help them identify customers that might be a match, again, for the type of, of company that they're building. And of course, in the event that we end up not investing, I don't know that we necessarily tailor pass emails for founder psychology, but um, we definitely try to think about what it would take to succeed in that market and provide actionable feedback that speaks to both the market and uh, and the strengths that a founder would need to succeed in that space. I get, and in that part, do you think the track record of founder is important for you? 
track record in terms of uh, like resume and experience? For the previous startups or specific uh, roles? I think that, again, it speaks to the fit between the founder and the type of problem that they're looking to solve. A lot of hype is made of a lot of younger founders, particularly those coming out of university. I think that particular type of archetype of founder can actually be a really strong asset if you're going after an industry that historically hasn't had a lot of original thinking in it. A lot of these industries, folks are promoted from within organizations. It's very hard to get in sort of original thinking or out-of-the-box thinking from people that may actually not fully understand the ecosystem. And that supports them in their ability to think about disruptive ideas and have a disruptive vision. At the same time, there's limitations to having a background like that. And in certain cases, it actually can make a lot of sense to have more experience. I think it's particularly true in enterprise sales But it doesn't necessarily have to be the founder. I think there are a lot of circumstances where a strong co-founder, a VP of sales, VP of marketing, somebody of that sort can really help to balance out a forward-thinking team that might not have as much enterprise sales experience. And fundamentally, we're really just looking for the drivers of that person because a lot of these skills can be learned. In no case would that ever be a deal breaker for us. And you invest in the early stage. And my question, do you invest in pre-revenue companies? Yeah, absolutely. We invest in pre-revenue companies. And again, I know I keep drilling this point home, but it just so much of it depends on the type of company that you're looking to build. In certain cases, we're investing in companies that are really building fundamentally new technology for the spaces that they're going after. We have a company in our portfolio, Path Robotics, building an autonomous welding solution. This company, when we invested in them, basically had a pilot. That was what you were investing off of and a proof of concept on the hardware, but they're really gritty problems that take incredibly sharp teams and uh, an aptitude for being able to recruit top machine learning engineers from universities across the country. And we're absolutely willing to get in the trenches with these founders and help them get to product market fit and ultimately close their first paying customers. I get it. And in that part, the early stage founders must be wondering the valuation part for the pre-revenue startups. So how do you come up with the valuation while closing the round? I wish valuation was was more science than art. I remember some of my first years in venture capital and in the startup ecosystem, I expected there to be fundamentally a lot more logic uh, in valuations. But the truth is, there just really is not. It's a supply-demand problem in an incredibly constrained industry. And of course, if a company's pre-revenue, likely the company's valuation is going to be lower than that of a company that has revenue. But there are so many other facets that go into that decision. And if you already have core IP figured out, and we do diligence, we talked to tons of customers, by the way, on the go-to-market side before we invest in a company, even for a pre-revenue company. And I know if I go out and I talk to 5 to 10 Fortune 500 companies that say, we will buy this technology if it exists and we will pay $100,000 or $500,000 you know, per contract, that's worth something, right? Because even if that's not full product market fit, that's much stronger conviction that I can have as an investor. And ultimately, valuation should, in theory, be a proxy for risk. But of course, given the size of the ecosystem, supply and demand ends up being a part of it as well. And while founders are reaching out uh, to these partners, the warm intros are the courting or just crystal clear cold emails are still good. What, what do you recommend for that? I don't care. I, I think the sort of old stodgy way of, of getting warm intros is I, I try to break with that theme as much as possible. I, I will be honest. I think a lot of people say, oh, we don't respond to cold emails because we think that they're not high quality. I think, I think there's some bias for sure in that sample. Obviously, because people think they need to get warm intros, a lot of people that are hustling and have a lot of grit end up getting these warm intros, but I don't think that's the only way to go about doing it. And frankly, 
I think to succeed in venture as a venture capitalist in an ecosystem that's this competitive, forget inbound versus versus warm intro. We have to go outbound to startup founders. And I think if you understand what we invest in, you understand what drives us, our psychology as investors, you would know I focus on AI and machine learning. I have a penchant for being interested in disruption in traditional industries. If you come to me and you're building something awesome in manufacturing, you want me to take a look and it's powered by AI or machine learning, I'm going to look and I don't care where it's coming from. Yeah. And my next question is for the pivots. I don't know on your portfolio startups, they have any pivots, but what's your role while uh, the founders are getting pivoted to startup? We're really involved. So we actually run a program internally where we work with corporates hand in hand, both in on our side, of course, in diligence and pilots and POCs as it relates to our startups, but also us supporting corporates that want to get more involved in Silicon Valley. And I think far too many funds focus on building relationships with companies in Silicon Valley, but the vast majority of US GDP is being driven by companies outside of Silicon Valley. And so we actually take an effort to meet with mid-markets and SMBs and ecosystems that might not be used to the title of CIO, might not be cloud first, even in 2020. And through that work, we really understand a lot of the problems that these companies are facing. And instead of just saying, hey, corporate, take a look at this startup and having it have a 20% rate of converting to something or less, we know the problem so well that I can generally say, if we find a company that does this and I intro them to this oil and gas company, I have a pretty high degree of confidence that they're going to be able to close a contract if they can deliver on their promise. I get it. And while closing to runs, founders sometimes just focus on the valuation part for the numbers rather than just focus on next two years, uh, what their plans for the next two years. What do you suggest for them while closing to runs on the negotiations part especially? Uh, well, I can speak to how I think about it as an investor and feel free to follow up as far as negotiations specifically go. I actually think companies spend too much time focusing on like two, three, four, five year time horizons. It's very important. Like I always tell companies, tick the box in my head or help me tick the box that you can be a billion dollar company. That market size is always going to be important. But people don't spend enough time tactically just talking about the next 12 months. And fundamentally, like one of the biggest jobs of a seed stage investor is to shepherd a company through series A. So I know from the time that I invest in a company that the clock starts ticking and we've got 12, 18, maybe 24 months max to raise another round of funding given burn rate and runway. And so I need to believe that there are things actionably that are going to happen the day that we close that'll start setting that company up for success to raise Series A. So I actually, I, I implore the founders that we meet to spend time talking about that and really walking us through the day-to-day nitty-gritty challenges that they're facing. Because once we invest, that's what we're going to be working on and we're going to be helping those founders to solve this problem. So we might as well know them up front. I don't know if that answered your question, if you have other pieces yeah, yeah. around it specifically. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And for the Series A runs, mostly for the last couple of years, the Series A runs, check size are getting increased. And what do you recommend for the founders? What are the real proof points and to show off at the Series A round? And when the founder should, should say, yes, I'm to raise a round for the Series A. Sure, sure. Maybe this is a non-standard answer to this question, but I think people are always looking for some kind of uh, magic bullet or easy answer to these kinds of questions. Fundamentally, you're trying to build a logical case and de-risk an investment. So the, like I get asked all the time, what revenue, if when I come back to you, what revenue should I have? When I come back to you, Series A's get done all the time for companies that are frankly pre-revenue. We see it. We've, I've seen pre-revenue Series B's get done in Silicon Valley. It's really not the right way to think about it. I think you really need to think about what are the, the biggest risks from the perspective of the investor. Put yourself in their shoes, empathize with them, understand what they're looking for, 
It's their money. They're managing money of LPs in their fund. What's going to be top of mind for them? That's going to be influenced by popular conversations in the media. That's going to be influenced by popular conversations in the venture capital community. That's going to be influenced by their background, previous portfolio companies. Help them get to conviction. And if I say that I'm worried about traction, that's probably not me saying that I'm worried about the amount of revenue you have. That's probably me saying, I think your go-to-market's broken and maybe it's not sustainable for you to continue to acquire customers at the CAC that you've been acquiring them at. And so it's just a much more nuanced question. And I think founders should push their VCs and people that they're pitching and talking to try to get to the heart of what they really mean, because usually it's not as simple as just traction or too early. Those are, I think, cop-out answers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I get it. And in that part, especially for a series like price round, should founder really know the VC partner who is going to come to the previous maybe couple of months or five, six months earlier and what you recommend for it? Ideally, yeah. That's what both sides want. I always want to know portfolio companies and founders before an investment. I think some of the best companies that we've done have been founders that we've known for a long time and have gotten to see their success. Nothing is more impressive. Forget pitch decks, anything else. Nothing is more impressive than getting to watch a company make a promise and make good on that promise over two to three months. That's the number one thing that I think would lead to conviction in any venture scenario, under promise, over deliver. Unfortunately, the ecosystem is so competitive that deals move so quickly that it's actually rare for companies to have that much time with an investor without having a round close or be preempted by another fund. So whenever possible, I think it's important to try to respect the importance of building those relationships. But notwithstanding, it may or may not be possible depending on the competitive situation for your round. I get it. And after a price round, the board is engaging around the top-notch team of a founder. And for the really early-stage founders who are getting in the first time for this board experience, what's your suggestion to leverage the board effectively with starting the price round? Yeah, I can definitely speak most to the early stage aspect of it. There's Boards play a couple of fundamentally important functions. Of course, there's the governance piece that a lot of people talk about. But I think, and, and that's been belabored to death. I don't think I need to, to spend time going through that. But I would say much more on the founder support side of things. It's really important to have a good relationship with your early board members and for that relationship to be still informal and incredibly collaborative. And I think that's something we think a lot about at Basis Set is how do we build these really strong relationships with founders as people more so than just being a board member in their company. And I think that's how you build success. That's how you build the right culture. That's how you solve problems. Ultimately, there's always going to be, if it's overly formalized, there's going to be a dichotomy where founders don't necessarily want to be honest because they want to try to shape perspective or discussion to make sure that a board meeting is successful or that they are able to secure pro rata later on or get a seed fund to rate, uh, to lead their series A. But ultimately, that's not always in the best interest of the company, especially in the short term. So we spend a lot of time building relationships with founders outside of board meetings, making sure that we're setting them up for success, that we really understand what's going on, that founders aren't afraid to share their day-to-day challenges so that we can help solve them and build a successful company together. And my last question uh, comes for the pandemic. And uh, do you think the investment thesis of VCs that focus on just U.S. startups is changing after the pandemic? And do you think how SF is going to shape after the pandemic? Right now, people are leaving to SF. And what do you think about it? Yeah, it's interesting. I think so much of this is shaped by media and by the conversations that we all have in our small venture startup ecosystem community out here in Silicon Valley. I, people say, will deals start moving out of Silicon Valley? Deals have been getting done outside of Silicon Valley for a long time. We invest in the Midwest, we invest in the South, we invest in the East Coast, we have portfolio companies in Europe. 
pre-COVID, I'm traveling to all of these ecosystems. And while it may be true that many of them don't have examples of companies that have IPO'd yet, a lot of them have companies that are getting damn close. And I don't know that, so that what's happening with COVID is a fundamental paradigm shift in Silicon Valley. Maybe it's the first time that people are coming to terms with the fact that there is entrepreneurship happening outside of Silicon Valley. There are startups everywhere. Startups, if anything, Silicon Valley exports culture. And we've exported that culture to basically every major city on the planet. So for now, I still expect Silicon Valley to be leading in terms of venture dollars when reports come out and things like that. But if you're not paying attention to other ecosystems, you're behind the ball. I get it. Perfect. John, it's really nice to having you. Thank you for coming to Founders FAQ. Yeah, this was awesome. Anytime. By the way, Founders FAQ is in pre-order and it covers the answers to all the possible questions of a founder in a startup journey, whether revealing life-saving principles for the startup survival path, building A-plus themes, creating an evolving machine, setting up a need culture, or interpreting the true path for the fundraising. You can pre-order it from foundersfaq.com and you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook.